Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's some areas of your life that if you believe you can grow, that you're just much more likely to be able to do the work that allows you to grow. And it's really obvious in our work in, in human performance that everyone is capable. It's just a matter of finding... Uh, two things. One is where is an area where you have innate motivation? And the other is what are the things that are blocking you? Um, so on the motivation front, most people who look at performance think the whole key is most like naive kind of takes on, on performance are that you just need more motivation. Like people are constantly trying to motivate people. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tony, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. I am very excited to be here. Yeah, it is really, really cool to have you here. You know, I actually came across your story by uh, way of somebody on your team, and I was very intrigued by everything that you're up to. I mean, I think what people probably might know you for is Coach.me, which probably many of our listeners actually have installed on their phones if they're trying to change habits. But uh, for the people who don't know about you, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Uh, yeah, so if we go early in my career, or even early in my life, I think I have a, a funny answer, which is I got started thinking about human performance by playing Dungeons and Dragons. And the thing that it puts into your head, or at least put into my head, was the idea that your life is constantly about leveling up. And that just, it really stuck with me. And it stuck with me when I play, was um, uh, playing sports, to play basketball, and I was a distance runner. And it stuck with me um, when I graduated college. And so um, I, I think, you know, some people are really just born ambitious and hardworking. And I almost, in a way, stumbled into it. Because for a long time, even though, I, even though I had this, like, idea of leveling up in my head, I really actually thought of myself as a pretty lazy, apathetic person. And it wasn't until midway through high school that I realized it wasn't that I was lazy. It was that I just didn't like school. And that was a big epiphany for me because when I started getting involved in sports, I realized, well, I really love sports. I often in the off season was the person on the team who put the most time into practicing. And so I couldn't be lazy. I had to kind of come to grips with this idea that 
just because I didn't put a lot of apply myself to school didn't mean I was lazy. So I you know sort of transitioned into thinking I was apathetic about school, but uh, what I really needed to do was find things that I was passionate about. And so later, you know, I found that I was passionate about programming, and I ended up graduating uh, with a computer science degree and getting a job. Uh, as a programmer working for MasterCard right after the first dot-com cra- uh, crash. So it was still at a point where I could get a reasonably high-paying job. It just wasn't a very uh, interesting job. And that's what really shook me up is once I started working for MasterCard, I, I, don't know, I think the younger version of me would have been really happy to have a job that had very little pressure and you didn't have to work very hard at. Uh, but I think because I had become so passionate about programming that I really hated having a job where I wasn't being challenged and especially where the work I was doing just really didn't matter. I mean, yeah, if you've ever worked in like corporate IT, it's like we just did a lot of really slow-moving projects that no one cared that much about. Um, and so, uh, m- you know, most of my time at MasterCard, actually, I was sp- like played fantasy sports <laughs> and, um, and surfed the web. And, you know, the good news is back then, and this was 2000, the web was a lot smaller, so I actually could read almost all of it. Um, and then, um, and so that got me hungry, though, because I, I just... It just it wasn't a fun job for me. And so I came back out to California where I grew up and worked for the most interesting company that would hire me, which was O'Reilly Media, which was a really big tech media company at a point in time when books really still mattered. So in that early 2000s, every programmer had a bookshelf of O'Reilly books literally on their desk. And now I think programmers are more likely to use online resources like Stack Overflow, but there, that period in time, O'Reilly really mattered just tremendously to everyone in tech. And so I, I stumbled into a very interesting community where O'Reilly was the hub of a ton of people doing interesting work, a ton of uh, open source uh, people, a ton of startup people. And that, that's where I realized what was actually possible. If I kept leveling up as a programmer, I could, you know, I was starting to see myself as, you know, being part of, uh, you know, some hot startup, and and that I think that's really where my career trajectory started. Is because I I was as connected, and I finally I saw the path. I don't know. Some people seem to know what their path in life is when they're um, really young. Uh, but I really, I needed someone to show it to me. And O'Reilly is the company that showed it to me. And so uh, what happened after that? Then the, um, you know, then I, I just, I connect, got connected to a, another startup who, um, you know, I was looking at doing, when I was working on O'Reilly, I was like, well, at the end of the day, this is a book company. And so I do want to work for a real software company. I got hired to be the head of engineering at a startup called Odeo, which was a podcasting startup. And we actually basically came to the conclusion that podcasting was dead, <laughs> which this is 2005, and I think it's ironic that you know, here we are, podcasting was actually very much alive. And so uh, once we realized that podcasting didn't feel like it was going anywhere, we started doing all sorts of um, 
side projects and experiments. And very famously, one of those side projects became Twitter. And that's far and away the biggest success that I've you know gotten to w- uh, witness firsthand. Um, so I think I'm the sixth user of Twitter. My family is like the 20th, 21st, 22nd users of Twitter. Like we were very early adopters, and um, uh, but still, you know, even that company, I felt like I could do more and have more of an impact on the world. And because I, you know, more of my experience at that company was not Twitter as we know it now. It was the failures that for that drove us into Twitter. And so I left to start um, my own company. That first company is the first company I ever started. I bootstrapped it, which means we didn't take any investors. And um, I, well, we is a is, it was a me actually. I didn't take any investors. And um, company was called Crowdvine. We built social network software and then ended up making a business and conferences. And I think this is again this it was a, an awakening around what is my life mission because when I went into the company. My mission was really pragmatic, don't fail. And for three years, that's what I woke up every day thinking, I do not want this company to fail. And uh, then in year four, it was profitable, and I could say, all right, well, we didn't fail, that's good. But then I had to ask myself, why why am I coming to work now that we haven't failed? And uh, it just, I I didn't have a reason that um, conference, like we were building software for conferences and I couldn't say to myself, I want to be the world's expert in conferences. Uh, so, you know, that begged the question, what do I want to be the world's expert in? What, what is it that I would, you know, make my life's work? And on reflection, it, it went all the way back to Dungeons and Dragons. I've always been interested in what it takes, you know, what is the secret to people that are really elite at their job, and you know, obviously, yeah, I wasn't born just knowing that. So I really was curious about investigating, um, investigating, and so, uh, and I think that's been a trend in everything I've ever been interested in. And so, uh, so that that's what led to Coach Me. Although Coach Me has its own history of pivots, I think we probably pivoted four times. Where initially called Lift, uh, we have. You know, we got started with a ton of high high level backers, but unfortunately, no product market fit, and so we had to really, you know, scrap our way to something that worked. And I think now we're at something that works amazingly well. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> you know, that raises uh, numerous questions, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, I actually want to ask you a question about sure. this concept of leveling up and balancing that with a sense of satisfaction with our lives and gratitude for where we're at because I, I feel like it can be this never-ending cycle of feeling like we're not where we want to be if all we're doing is constantly thinking about, okay, what is the next level? What is the next level? Um, and I'm curious, you know, especially from your perspective, uh, how you think about something like that. And, you know, I think that's such an important insight that you're getting at there is why are you leveling up? Yeah. Um, Really early when I was starting this company, I, um, I went to a conference that uh, really helped me put my finger on what I liked and didn't like about human performance. This conference was, um, I think it was just called the Mobile Health Conference. And what it turned out to be was 
uh, a room full of thin people uh, trying to fix fat people. I mean, (laughs) like that's like essentially what it was. Like, oh, obesity—it's so terrible! It's so terrible! It's so terrible! I mean, these these thin people were really hurt by overweight people, and I just thought, man, if a fat person was in this room. They would like start punching people in the face. I mean, the whole thing was so offensive and so judgmental. Um, and I just thought that's not what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of helping people uh, do the things that they really that are aspirational, and not so much fix themselves, but um, grow themselves into whoever it is that they want to be. And I, I think about it about that world of. Um, performance as being um, about almost two levels of satisfaction. You know, like you could have a really great meal. I think probably one of the best meals I ever had if someone treated me to a dinner at Per Se, which is a super fancy uh, restaurant in New York that is probably like 400, I think it was $400 a person. And uh, I thought that was a fine meal. But I actually don't think about that meal very often. It wasn't it's not the most satisfying thing that I ever did in my life. But what I do think back to are really hard things that I've accomplished that, um, that took, uh, that, you know, stretched me. Like um, back when I was a programmer, I wrote a programming book on regular expressions. And um, it was really hard for me to do. I wasn't qualified at all going into it. And and, you know, also, like, my time management skills for writing a book were terrible. I mean, you must know as an author, it's actually, it's actually kind of stressful to write a book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the um, – but I did it, and I'm still proud of it. And so that's the thing that I've come to find is when you really work hard at something or whenever I've worked, really worked hard at something, that's something that gives me almost a lifelong satisfaction, um, and so that's how I look at it. Does that, does that make oh, yeah, yeah. sense? Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is you said at a certain point in your life, you were apathetic, but then you sort of made this mental shift to this desire to level up. I'm wondering if you think everybody has that capacity to do that. And if so, how, uh, how, you know, how does that happen? Gosh, absolutely. People do have the capacity. Um, you know, one is, uh, just believe. There's actually really good research from this from Carol Dweck at Stanford who has a whole book on growth mindset that there's some areas of your life that if you believe you can grow that you're just much more likely to be able to do the work that allows you to grow. And it's really obvious in our work in, in human performance that everyone is capable. It's just a matter of finding uh, two things. One is where is an area where you have innate motivation and the other is what are the things that are blocking you um so on the motivation front most people who look at performance think the whole key is most like naive kind of takes on on performance are that you just need more motivation like people are constantly trying to motivate people and i have um uh you know i have a story about um someone in my life who's a little bit Aspergery, who um, I think perfectly kind of sums up this idea of, uh, of motivation is uh, she got on a bus and the bus driver was smoking. And so she said to the bus driver, hey, uh, 
do you know that smoking is bad for you? Right. And, um, which is a form of motivation, like, hey, if you knew that uh, smoking had health risks, would you, you know, don't you think you would quit smoking? And like, people are constantly trying to tell smokers how bad smoking is for them. But it's not a motivation problem. And, uh, and this bus driver, you know, just ended up swearing at, you know, saying, you know, screw you, you know, I'll smoke if I want to smoke. And um, because it wasn't a motivation problem. And I think that, uh, that that's like part of the issue is you. Th- I thought I was lazy because I wasn't doing well in school, but I wasn't motivated to do well in school. So it wasn't that was the the core problem. And so you have to do the search for what is it that you are um, that you actually like and are interested in. Mm-hmm. And once and that's how you solve motivation. Um, and then once you have motivation, it's like you know what is getting in your way. And so. A lot of times people are weighed down by guilt. Um, we have a story in, from the Coach Me community where this guy emailed us to say, hey, you know, things are going great. Um, I used you guys to stop eating carbs at lunch, and now I lost 10 pounds. And because of that, I'm working on learning uh, Vietnamese and uh, Italian because I might, tra- I might take some time off and travel the world. And I, I always thought that was such a crazy story because why on earth would losing 10 pounds be a blocker for traveling the world, right? It just, just travel the world, dude. You don't have to lose any weight at all. But for him, I think that that weight loss was a kind of a blocker where he felt like, well, you know, like he was, had so much guilt, he couldn't do the things that he really wanted to do. And once he removed that guilt, then it was really easy for him to do something I think that was much harder than lose weight, which was, you know, learn a couple languages and, and make this big life change. Mm. You know, it, what I think is interesting is, is we're talking about intrinsic motivation and, you know, we live in a world where we are exposed to so much external stimulation and external validation that I think that we actually misperceive what we want to do with our lives and what we want our goals to be because, like, you can get on Medium every single day and read about some latest unicorn or some, you know, billionaire. And I'm just curious, you know, based on the perspective that you have, uh, having been around the people that you have, especially to, to have seen, you know, people go on to the success that people like Biz and Jack and all those people have, like, what do you have to say about that? Um, I actually, I, if I can, I want to reference one of your past guests, Cal Newport, mm-hmm. who with his work on Deep Work, he actually gave me um, a lot of motivation recently to analyze where I was putting my time in terms of social media. And I had this like really eye-opening experience where I wrote something that to my mind was pretty trivial on Medium. It's like I took a an answer I'd already given on Quora and kind of fluffed it up a little bit and gave it a link baity headline. It was like um, uh, one trick to kill procrastination forever. I think that was the headline. And um, and this thing just took off. It was it's the like fourth most read post I've ever written on Medium. And it probably took me 15 minutes to publish it. But what was eye-opening is then I think I spent three hours, you know, uh, maybe even more than that, over the next four days uh, obsessively checking my stats. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know, I I went from being proud of myself for for writing something without, you know, taking a ton of time to write it. Because I just, I don't have a lot of time to write and I wish I did. And so... I have to be very um, 
just very sensitive to the, the scope of writing projects that I take on. So I, I started out really proud of myself and then I ended up being kind of ashamed by how addicted I was to the um, really just recommends and page views. And so, um, so what I did, and this is, you know, I think really articulated well by Cal was um, I took all sorts of apps off my phone. I don't have Medium on my phone. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Facebook. I don't like no social network that you could think of. Uh, and because of that, my phone is really now just a tool for uh, making phone calls, looking at maps, checking my calendar, and you know, like calling a you know an Uber or uh, like I like to order food off of my phone sometimes. But it is just stopped being a time waster and. Immediately, I think it maybe took two days before the buzzing in my head went away, mm-hmm. and I was like suddenly, you know, much more productive. And it, it reminded me when you're talking about like people I've worked with who are very uh, productive. A person that I think a lot about is Evan Williams, the mm-hmm. CEO of Medium, and he's on our board, so I actually get a, a very close look at how he works. And he has this phrase. He actually wrote it on a whiteboard at one of our board meetings once. I don't know why he wrote it on the whiteboard, but it, I mean, I guess it stuck with me. So maybe that was the purpose of it. And the phrase was, there's always another level. And so I think of myself as a very productive person. I've been working in performance for a long time. I like, I constantly re like revising my productivity methods. Um, and yet this one thing of wiping all these apps off of my phone actually got me to a whole nother level. And I think, um, you know, we're talking about kind of the feelings around leveling up. Mm-hmm. A common feeling is um, is feeling bad about yourself that you didn't do it sooner. Mm-hmm. And I definitely had that feeling after this one. And I just, I know that that feeling comes and then goes because, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather be better and just deal with, you know, 15 minutes of feeling bad about myself than like, stay at the level I am in order to preserve that minor, you know, that minor hurt. Mm. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this. I was just uh, finishing up Chris Hadfield, uh, the astronaut's book, and he was talking about how uh, it could be really tempting when you're in the position that he's in to basically only be happy and satisfied when you have these huge sort of life accomplishments like going into space. But he realized that uh, what actually made a big difference was to appreciate the really small sort of wins and accomplishments on a day-to-day basis because those big things don't happen all that often. Right. So this is something I do that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are coming to it, but I think this idea of having a gratitude practice Mm -hmm. is really important. And the gratitude practice, the first one that I started, I have two, I think they're both really important. But the first one I started was me and my spouse, Sarah. We're in a period of like really a lot of like high pressure and things weren't going that well. And we were just super stressed. Like, you know, she was working really hard and getting her MBA. And I was getting my first company off the ground. And it was just hard to even make payroll, you know. And so that was a very stressful time. And so we started something that we called Two Good Things. And I guess now we're nine or ten years into it where every night we each tell each other two good things from our day. And what that does for me, at least, is 
um, really kills the idea that my life is like hard or bad. Like I have never had a bad day where I couldn't, you know, didn't have at least two good things that happened to me. And sometimes a good thing is like I ate a really good burrito. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely we've had periods of like what we ate was the best thing that happened to us. But a lot of times they're really amazing. And I think that kind of keeps a baseline level of gratitude going for me. So I never go too far into a dark place. And then the other thing that I do is a yearly review where I try and come up with one major highlight for every week since the last time I did the review. So I'm like basically yearly on these and come up with about, you know, um, you know, 50 plus of these every time I do it. And what I love about that is that if you were asked me to like just off the top of my head summarize the last 12 months, I would say I worked really hard and work was stressful, right? And uh, and then, but when I look at the list, I'm like, wow, you know, I saw great movies, I read great books, I traveled to great places, I made great friends, um, and I had really huge work accomplishments that I'm very proud of. And so and so now that list, which I you know I publish every year, and now I can go back and say, well look, the things I was accomplishing the first year I wrote this list are nothing compared to what we ac- I accomplish now. Like, my life is great. And, um, and I think that really helps me stay balanced in uh, what would otherwise be, you know, I think, a pretty tough, tough job. I think the job of a CEO is always hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's especially hard at the beginning of a business when, like, nothing works. Like, you don't know who you're... I mean, nothing works. Your product you know, isn't there, it's the quality is not there, you don't know who your customers are, you don't know where money is going to come from. It's just, it, there's a lot of uncertainty and the gratitude practice for me is one of the best. And actually in the Coach Dummy community, there's a couple of major uh, gratitude um, sub-communities. One, um, uh, write three, uh, three good things about your day is uh, uh, one of the top ones. And it's just a really beautiful practice that I would recommend for almost anyone. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned that when you were at O'Reilly and up until that point, you couldn't really see it. But at that point, you kind of saw the path that your career would take. And I want to ask this in a different way than I've asked in the past. Let's say somebody is at a moment where they don't feel like they've seen the path. Uh, are there ways they can look for it in their existing environment? Yeah. The, so I've seen people go at it two ways. And, and, but only one of those ways appears to work. One is to do nothing until you know what the path is. And uh, so there's like, I anal you analyze, you do exercises, you do a lot of self-examination. And what ends up happening is that no idea uh, that you come up with actually ends up feeling strong enough to you that you could say, yes, this is my path. Uh, the, the way, the approach that I do see work is actually the opposite of that is you you go out and you try things and you experiment and you like go aggressively trying to do great work and at some point you learn what works and what doesn't work and there's a kind of a quote that explains that um, that I got from Eric Reese, the author of Lean Startup, which I've never heard him say this publicly, but he said it to me privately and I really love the quote, which is a startup is the process by which the founders come to understand themselves. I just thought that was such a great observation that your path in life is not something that you come to intellectually. It's something that you feel all the way you know, to your core. And so you can't actually know it. You can only know it through experience. When you experience it, you'll say, oh, that is it. That is it. And, um, and so you see this in entrepreneurs where it's like you don't make decisions in your company based on... Um, what is the best, po you know, best possible outcome? You're constantly filtering it based on what are you interested in doing. 
Um, otherwise, we'd all be running like hedge funds or something. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, by default, we like we've done major filtering just you know before day one, and um, and so that that's what I see mostly is you have to come at it from experience, and so the best thing you can do is really uh, try try a lot of things. Do you think everybody has a path that they're destined to take? I don't know. Do you? That's a good question. Um, I, I, w- I hope so. Uh, I, I hope there's a what I what I hope for is that people have acceptance. So um, you know, like one of my what I think of is the most sad question that I ever read, but also one that I kind of gives me a chuckle is and is if you see someone ask. And you often see this question on like Hacker News. If you'll see someone ask, like, you know, I'm 27 and I've never started a company. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was worth X billion dollars at this age. Is my life over? <laughs> I, right? I'm 38, so I have to laugh. Right. That. I know exactly. Right. I think I was 27 or 28 when I started my first company. You know, I was Jack Dorsey's boss, and he actually had started a company when he was really young. Uh, um, I think it was a courier uh, company, but you know the companies that mattered. He didn't start that those until you know he was Twitter. I think he was twenty eight when he started, and uh, you know Square. He would have been thirty two. Um, so there's there's plenty of time, and if you actually look at it, you know you, you can find people who didn't start their first real company until their forties or fifties. So you're never really behind. But more about that question, I think why. Why is your definition of what you should be based on Mark Zuckerberg? I mean, when I think about acceptance, it's, you know, there is a, I had a ton of great coworkers at MasterCard who seemed completely fine with that uh, otherwise pretty boring uh, work. And the reason they were fine is because they knew their life mission was not, um, was not defined by work. It was defined by family and friends. And, I, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think the important thing is to know what feels right to you. Um, and if, you know, in a way, family and friends seems way healthier than entrepreneurship. You know, I didn't choose entrepreneurship because I think, um, I think there's something intrinsically uh, better about it. I just, I, I just happen to know myself that, you know, I'm, it's a, more like a compulsion. You know, it's interesting, and I, I really appreciate that perspective because I think that we live in a culture that perpetuates and glamorizes uh, the entire concept uh, of entrepreneurship, lifestyle. I mean, hell, I mean, what do I do? I bring on people like you to talk about the work that they do all day long. And I realize at a certain point, like, when I, even in my own media consumption patterns, I noticed I'm like, wow, I'm like, reading a lot of this is making me feel a lot less accomplished and a lot, you know, like I, I'm not worth much because I keep being, you know, setting a standard that's impossible to measure up to. Right. Right. I, this is, I, this is where, I mean, I think we're talking about performance a little bit, but we're like, yeah. we're talking about a gratitude practice, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, this is, I think there's always multiple levels that you have to tackle performance at. And, you know, kind of the more unique things to talk about are the things on the edges, right? Like, 
you know, I basically feel like the keys to my performance are meditation and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Even though like the head-on uh, keys to my performance are like product sense, marketing, sales, right? Like th- those things are actually what makes me a better CEO and makes CoachMP a more successful company. But I never would have, those things never would have worked. I never would have been able to stick with it if I hadn't done these things on the edges. And of course, whatever your like core competency is, it's very natural for you to put work into it. And I think that's not usually the thing that's tripping, that's tripping people up. Well, there's no way I'm going to let you out of this conversation without talking about the early days of Twitter and, and Odeo. Um, I mean, getting to work pe- with people like Ev Williams, you know, Biz Stone, Jack Dorsey, I mean, who effectively at this point, you know, we look at as sort of Silicon Valley folk heroes. Um, what did you learn from them about success, about human behavior, about psychology, about human performance uh, from being up and cl- so close to people that are really kind of visionary thinkers? A ton of good things ton of good lessons from all of them. And um, so I'll start with Biz. He has this phrase that I think really like summarizes the whole, every, almost everything I think about human performance is, he says, it took him 10 years to become an overnight success. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that humility of it, of just he knows he put the work in and that, uh, and that tons of people are treating him like, you know, wow, you just you just came up with Twitter. It's amazing, right? And it's like, well, he put a lot of work into putting himself in a position where something like that could happen to him. Obviously, there's luck involved, but uh, you know, ever tons of people I talk to are trying to skip the hard work. Like even when I think about Coach Me, there's two ways I could tell you how I raised you know money for it the first time. The kind of the the way that people talk about how they raise money is often like makes it seem trivial. Like I had this great idea and then I told someone about it and they gave me money. Right. And that's actually what happened is I took, I had a coffee with Ev and he actually had tea and I had milk and cookie actually. (laughs) But so we got together for a meeting. I didn't demo anything. I just told him the idea and he said, that is amazing. I would love to work on this with you. Let me invest and I'll like co-design the first version with you. And, uh, and so it was just based off of a coffee. But the, the better thing, and this is where I think the biz quote comes into play, is to ask, well, how did I get that coffee with Ev? And for me, it started with I taught myself how to code, and then I went to college, and I got a computer science degree, and then I worked as a programmer, even writing a book on programming, and that helped me get a job where I actually ended up working for Evan Williams, did a great job as his head of engineering, and kept in touch with him, uh, until this point later in his life where he had free time and you know obviously enough money to be an investor. So that whole process took me 15 years. Mm-hmm. All right? Not, like, yeah. Uh, basically, from when I first started writing code to um, that coffee with Ed was a 15-year process. And tons of people think well, that they can be an entrepreneur. Like they, they've got no... They're bringing not even one deep skill to it, but somehow they think they can start a company. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's true, but uh, I, it wouldn't hurt to also be good at, you know, good at some part of your work and to have, um, have some experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing, though, that I also often think about with Evan Jack 
is that they're not traditional CEOs as you hear about in the press. Right? They're not Donald Trump. They're not Larry Ellison. They're not, um, they're not a particular form of Steve Jobs. They're both very much design visionaries. But Steve Jobs, if you read that autobiography, he was really kind of a jerk, right? And I think there's this mythology around CEOs as people who are like really hard-charging, making aggressive decisions. And they both showed a path around uh, reaching success by making a few very high-quality decisions. And Ev has done this, I think, three times in a row with Blogger and then Twitter and then Medium, that he, he knew what to focus on and he kept the companies focused on those things. And, uh, and it, he didn't do it through yelling and screaming. And so I, I think I wouldn't, I don't meet the Larry Ellison test. I'm just not that type of person. Mm-hmm. And so if you had to be that type of person to be a CEO, then I could never be a CEO. And I think that if I hadn't met Jack and Ev, I wouldn't have known what that other, uh, what that other pattern looks like. Do you think that everybody has the capacity to perform uh, at the level that people like Evan Jack and, and Biz do? Like, do you think that is inherent in every one of us? Right. There's that book, Talent is Overrated. Yep. I've had Jeff Colvin here as a guest yeah, before. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, I think that is the reality of it. Um, I mean, you got to say, you got to balance that with the, you know, the Warren Buffett quote that he won the genetic lottery, mm-hmm. which is essentially he had good parents, right? Like, he's not, if you're, you know, he was free from baggage. Yeah. And I, so that, I think that's the major caveat is you have to be, it's helpful to be free from baggage. There is such a thing as baggage and that does hold people back. And so you shouldn't be judging other people. Um, but when you're just thinking about yourself, yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, Jack wasn't born Jack. I mean, Jack, when I knew him, was just a very reliable engineer. He wasn't a CEO. He wasn't a visionary. He wasn't raising his hand in product meetings with you know, bold proclamations about what we could build. He just he wrote code and he wrote it really well. And even when you think about the first time he was Twitter CEO and then how he was as Square CEO, everyone that I've talked to said that there was a huge improvement in uh, how he ran a company. And so what, what that tells you is that all of these people grew into it. The same, you know, I don't, I don't know all of Ev's history, but, you know, I mentioned three companies that he started, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't mention the fourth. And he might have started more, but my understanding is that he was running some sort of CD-ROM-based multimedia company out of Nebraska. And I don't know the details, but what, it, what I heard is that it did not end well. And so if you think about it, it's like, well, Ev wasn't born Ev. He started a company and did a really bad job at it. And then he started another company and did a better job at it, and it was more successful, and that was Blogger. And he started Twitter, and I think did an even better job of running Twitter than, than Blogger. And he started Medium, and I think Medium is far and away the best-run company that he has started. And so, he, I mean, that's just proof that he got there through hard work and you know, among the many things that we idolize in the Valley, you know, Google idolizes college degrees and, you know, SAT scores and whatnot. I have no idea what SAT scores are. Mm-hmm. But he, I mean, he has three semesters at Nebraska. I mean, even if you had a PhD from Nebraska, would Google hire you? 
Like, I think probably not, actually, right? Right. And, um, uh, and so, you know, I watch Evan. He works hard. And that's, like, that's really a lot of it. He's, he works hard not just on getting the work done, but on improving himself. And so if that's what you want to sign up for is, you know, five to ten years of improving yourself, you can make really uh, miraculous changes in your life. And even, you know, even a week of improving yourself you usually have a pretty massive immediate impact. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that you, you talk about the five to ten year perspective because I think our, our perception of longevity um, is kind of warped. Uh, yes. You know, given, given what we see. I mean, I like, you know, you, you and I were talking earlier that I'm getting to be an author and I think it's been seven years before I got to do that. Right. You know, and that entire process, I realized it was a process of reinvention. Somebody told me once, I think it was James Altucher, he said reinvention is a five-year process at a minimum. That's great. So, so that sort of begs the question of, well, does that, is that a turn on or a turn off? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people peddle instant results. And even we, to some degree, do uh, frame something, frame a lot of our work in a way that implies instant results. So when we were doing, you know, kind of designing our products, there's an underlying behavior design methodology, which we, we based initially off of B.J. Fogg's work, who's a professor uh, at Stanford, and his methodology is called Tiny Habits. And when we kind of worked it into coaching, we called it momentum. And so we always, the thing that works for our clients the best is if we start with something small. There's no, we're going to do this whole thing overnight. We're going to start with something small and build consistency and build momentum from that, almost like um, you know, rolling a snowball downhill. You don't have to start with a big, uh, big snowball because it'll get big by the end of the hill. And so that, that is important that you do get immediate results because otherwise you won't ever stick with it for the whole five, you know, five to ten years or um, I, you know, I even like hesitate to say, uh, you know, five years. I'm I, thinking about when I made the transition from engineer to manager. It probably took me a year to like really wrap my head around it. But most people, when they think about, you know, like I want to be a better manager, can you explain how in two to three sen- sentences? <laughs> right, like that's the mindset that just really doesn't work. Yeah, the soundbite culture. Right. What's the trick to being a better manager? I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> You're going to have to read at least a book. Yeah. I would say so. It's kind of the same question I get asked about writing. How do you write so much? I'm like, you sit down and you write every day. Right. You know, there is um, – I don't do a ton of the coaching at Coach Me, but I often will coach early on as we're kind of – whenever we're putting out a new program, usually I'm the leading edge of that to test out coaching methodologies. And I had this one client early on who was um, uh, who was trying to write their dissertation and really struggling. And what he said to me, he said, Tony, like, all I want to be able to do is write for eight hours a day, but I keep procrastinating. <laughs> and um, so I don't like to just flat out argue with my clients. I mean, you know, obviously the thought in my head is, Nobody can write for eight hours a day. That's the most ridiculous goal I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, instead, what I, I let him come to a different uh, epiphany, which is I gave him a very simple, and this is an example of a momentum-based framing, is I said, um, that's great. Uh, we'll get to that. But just as a starting point, 
could I give you a challenge? Uh, I want you to get a stopwatch, and the next time you, tomorrow when you go to your desk, I want you to time yourself. How long does it take you from when you sat first sat down to completing your first sentence? And so he responded the next, you know, right away saying, uh, or the next day he said, hey, that actually really worked. It took me a minute and 30 seconds to write my first sentence. And that just like, that got me unblocked. I wrote a ton over the next two hours. And now I think, you know, honestly, all I really need to do is write for two hours a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's the, um, that, uh, that epiphany for him, I just thought was really like so valuable that um, you do like, what is the secret is just to do it. And people are jumping like all the way to some fantasy in their head. Like he thought, well, the secret is to write for eight full hours a day. And it's like, well, no, I mean, the secret is to write the first sentence and then don't stop. Yeah. It's a bit like putting your shoes on or going to the gym. It's like, well, you're already here. You might as well work out. Exactly. Right. Those things really matter. And, you know, on the writing front, an example I like to give is um, uh, Stephen King, like super prolific writer. And uh, if you read his autobiography, he describes his productivity method as he sits down at like 8 a.m., and he's got a word count that he's shooting for, maybe a page count, something you know, basically reasonable, like you know, say for him at least, ten pages a day, and um, and but that's not what was really fascinating to me. What I latched onto was the tail end of the story where he said, usually I finish around four p.m. Sometimes I finish as early as one, and so here, like I'm in startup culture, and people are like, oh, you know, you should be working, you know all the time, all the way till midnight. And here is, uh, here's one of the most prolific writers of all time saying, no, 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 no. All you have to do is just do it consistently. Mm-hmm. You're like, he's not saying, I knock this book out by you know, writing until two in the morning every night. I mean, he has like, if his description of his life is, you know, sounds really pleasant, <laughs> right? Yeah. I wish I was done with my work at 4 p.m. every day. I mean, maybe that I, that might actually be healthier. It's something I've considered. Yeah, you know, I can't help but ask you, um, being around people like you know Ev Williams, Biz Stone, uh, and Jack Dorsey, and seeing you know them amass significant amounts of wealth. Um, what your perspective on money and wealth is has been as a result of, of being in that environment. Like, how has it changed, or has it? Um, then you know, what do you see as patterns in this? Um. That is a good question. That is, I'm just trying to think about how personal of an answer I can give to this because that actually like cuts, you know, very deep. I think for a lot of people who were early at Twitter because not everyone at Odeo ended up owning Twitter stock. In oh fact, yeah, I know. I, I read uh, Hatching Twitter and I was kind of shocked by some of it. Right, and you know, it's the it's because Twitter wasn't worth anything, and Ev bought the whole thing back. Uh-huh. And no one put up any sort of fight around that uh, because we didn't see any real value to it. And I, you know, to be honest, I don't really feel bad because I ended up not owning stock because I ended up leaving. Um, I basically helped pick the team that would stay with Jack, and then uh, didn't see a role for myself, so I went and did something else. And uh, I don't think I did anything really tremendous. I mean, that's part of the hatching Twitter story is there's all these people that think that because they were in the room. When twi- the Twitter came about, 
that they somehow played a big role. But actually, having watched Twitter get built, I think the people that played a big role were the people who stuck it out, that had to go through all those sleepless nights and really um, you know, had to find an audience for Twitter. I mean, Twitter was maybe 200 users when I left, right? Like, Biz did something amazing to get Twitter into the cable news ecosystem. So there, I think one thing that helped give me perspective was just starting a company and realizing how much more work there is than just the idea. I mean, the idea really is meaningless. It's the execution and all of the headache that goes along with that. The other thing I realized, and this is more watching Friends, uh, and this is not uh, really about Ev, Jack, or Biz, but it's about other people who were at Twitter. I didn't really feel like Twitter made them happy. And I think that, I mean, obviously I'm not saying anything surprising that Mm -hmm. money does not, if you have some hole in your soul, right, if you have some deep thing that is causing you unhappiness, money is not the thing that's going to solve that. In fact, it's going to exacerbate it. I'm not the first person to say that, but there is something about um, that phrase, money you know, doesn't buy you happiness. That is, that is a life lesson that everyone insists on learning for themselves, mm. <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's like, it sounds right, but I'd rather have money and know <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't push that very hard, but I definitely that was an observation uh, uh, from me. And, you know, same too, there was a lot of clamoring for credit. Uh, and I think credit doesn't, um, doesn't at the end of the day give you, uh, give you satisfaction. Because mm-hmm. um, these are all external, external things and they're not going to solve whatever internal problems you're having. So that's what I noticed with it. And I think out of all of the people involved with Twitter, I really felt, feel like Ev came out of it the most whole because he went into it, you know, really whole. Like he, he was an established person. Um, I mean, certainly Twitter changed his wealth, but he was already, you know, very wealthy from the blogger days. And so, um, you know, and also I say that because I know Ev the best, and I think, um, I think he is a great example of what. Um, what a person could be and could do with their life. I mean, great family man, very accomplished in business, uh, but you know, doing business the right way in a way that is world positive and puts his money to use doing world positive things and has good friends and is healthy, uh, takes care of his uh, mental and physical health. You know, is a big meditator. Um, actually, I'm in a meditation uh, uh, circle with him sometimes and. You know, I just I think he's a a great example. Certainly, someone that I look up to that managed to do that whole journey in a really healthy way. Hmm. Well, this has been awesome uh, and just a, a really really cool conversation. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So, I have one last question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That is a good question. It is. Uh, you know, it's intrinsic motivation. That, like, it, I think that's what it all boils down to. Like, people who are unmistakable choose a path. Uh, I mean, certainly they take external inputs, but I think they're really driven by some internal vision of what they could accomplish in the world. And that that is so, it's so easy in a lot of ways. I mean, it's just, 
do what's in your heart, but also so hard and so rare. Um, so that's what I always look for in people, it, people that um, can, you know, can, can work from their heart, from their soul. Um, I think a lot, a book that really helped me in that regard was a, um, a leadership book, True North. And it, it just, it, but it, it's so rare and I don't understand why that should be. And so I just try to, um, you know, give people confidence that they can, um, that they can pursue, you know, they can bet on themselves basically. Well, this has been really cool. Uh, I have just enjoyed talking to you so much and I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. All right, Srini, thank you. Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. So everybody who was playing a key role in my life, um, I had a chance to really step back, look at this period of time, a few years at a time, look at these questions. What did I receive from this person? What did I give to them? And what troubles and difficulties did I cause? Um, And over the course of two weeks, um, I had a chance to really um, construct a film of um, how I had lived my life um, from as far back as I could remember up until the present day. It wasn't kind of a smooth film like what you, you know, watch when you go to the movie theaters. It was very choppy, but it had very discreet little video segments of incidents and um, encounters and um, joy and sadness. And, and ultimately, that became my, uh, the story uh, um, that I left that center with. Greg Kretsch from the To-Do Institute joins us to talk about the Japanese art of self-reflection. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.